Hello everyone, I'm Colin, and thankful you've joined with our church community in our continuing studies through the Gospel of John. Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast is a fairly well-known story. It's the first recorded miracle in the Bible. But have you ever made the connection between that event and joy? Well, Pastor Brian shows us how that first miraculous sign is evidence to a sinful world that God's heart for humanity is ultimately to live peaceful, joyful lives. Even in the midst of daily challenges, we're reminded that in the presence of Jesus, we can experience true fulfillment. God wants us to live abundantly, walk in the joy His strength provides. We're in John chapter 2 for today's message. Pastor Brian is calling this one, The Joy of the Lord. So our theme, as I think most of us know, as we journey through this Gospel of John, is life in his name. And, and this phrase is taken from John's purpose statement found in the 20th chapter. And we've been just reminding ourselves of that uh, each week. But let me quote it again. These things, John says, are written. He, first, he says many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that haven't been recorded, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So so John writes this gospel with this intent, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that in believing in him and in receiving him, that we would have life in his name. And, and that life that he's referring to there is, of course, what we would commonly speak of as eternal life. But eternal life, sometimes when we think of it, we think of it just in the sense of duration. We think of eternal life as life that goes on endlessly, and it is that, but it's more than that. Because we receive life, not just in the future when we die, but we receive that life in the present. And receiving that life in the present, it it translates into what Jesus would uh, call abundant life or life to its fullest. And so what we want to, to look at today, specifically, we want to zero in on this first miracle or sign that Jesus did and, and see through this how um, life is communicated to us. The life of God is communicated to us through this first miraculous event. So the story which tells us about the first miracle, or as John calls it, the first sign that Jesus did, it gives us, it gives us a glimpse. That, that's the point that I want to make. What we're getting here is a glimpse into what life in his name looks like. And I'll give you a hint right up front 
that life that Jesus comes to give is not boring, it's not passionless or depressing. It's something glorious. And we will come back to that ultimately. But first, let's walk through the passage that we read today together, looking first of all at the first five verses. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. So many have asked, what on, on the third day of what? What? All of a sudden, we're at a third day. Why, why is John referring to the third day? Or, or what is he even talking about? So it seems, it's, it's a little point. It's not, there's not anything um, major about it. But just so we get some, some clarity, it seems that it's the third day after the things that we've been reading about. So what, what had happened previously, uh, Jesus had started uh, to make his journey toward Galilee with Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Simon Peter, and John. And so now it's the third day into that journey they arrive at Cana. Now, Cana was a small town like so many of those Galilean towns were, and it was on the road between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. So we know Jesus, his place of residence initially was Nazareth. And then he would ultimately make his base of operation in Capernaum. Capernaum sits literally on the water. And so there's, there's a distance of, of several miles that, that they would journey. But it was in this village that was near to the place where Jesus had grown up that there was a wedding feast. And so a wedding took place and Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, a wedding in those days was quite different than what we would know as a wedding today, even though, of course, we think of the celebratory aspects of a wedding and all the, the wonderful things that accompany a wedding. Friends and family and food and fun and all of those kinds of things. Uh, we do that today, but we do that today normally in one day. Or sometimes in, you know, eight hours or whatever. Uh, but at, at this time, this could last for an entire week. So they really got serious about this. A wedding was sort of like a honeymoon, a family reunion, a wedding shower, and a bachelor party all rolled into one. So it was kind of all of those different things. All the family would be there, so there's the family reunion, and then there would be gifts and things brought for the bride, and the, the, the groom would have all of his best friends there with him, and so this was the atmosphere that Jesus came into, but there is a problem that 
arises. And so what is the problem? When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, the Middle Eastern culture, one of the big um, features of Middle Eastern culture is hospitality. And that is an expectation. So if you fail in the area of hospitality, this is, this is just not a good thing in that culture. So, so this is a bit of a crisis here for um, the bridegroom, that, that the wine has failed. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, she comes to him with this issue. And his response is, woman, why do you involve me? It's, it's really more literally, why are you involving us? <laughs> what, what are you doing here? Now, think about it. 30 years have passed since the birth of Jesus. We know that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So 30 years have passed since his birth. Jesus had left Nazareth some months earlier. And now he returns with this group of guys. There's about five of them at this point. And it seems that Mary is recognizing that, that something's happening. Now, you can imagine perhaps what it would have been like for Mary, knowing what she knew about Jesus, to, to be waiting for, in some sense, almost waiting for her own vindication, but to be waiting for the fulfillment of what God had told her. And so Jesus is 30 years old and it's almost like Mary's like, when are we gonna get this going? And so she sees an opportunity. She seizes the moment. Perhaps the time has come for Jesus to reveal his true identity, but Jesus' response to her is one that would also let her know that the relationship that they've had is now transitioning from mother and son to master and disciple. Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus is just letting her know that there, he's, he's on the, the time frame that's been set by the Father. But then Mary, she says this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So somehow she, she just has this sense that something's going to happen here. 
even though Jesus does give her a little bit of a corrective. Now, just, just to say this, just so we understand. When Jesus said, woman, why do you involve me or why are you involving us? Um, to us, this sounds a little bit disrespectful. He doesn't say, mom, why are you involving me in this? He says, woman. And to us, that sounds like, whoa, that's kind of a sharp tone. But it, it doesn't mean the same thing in this context, that, that w- the way we would understand it. It's not a disrespectful way of addressing Mary. It's just simply a way of really asserting. It's almost like, you know, when you're 30 years old and your mom is still telling you what to do, you're like, Mom, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so Mary says, whatever he says, you do it. You know, these are the last recorded words of Mary. Whatever he says to you, do it. You think about the, um, you know, the unfortunate idolatry that developed around Mary over the centuries. And if we just paused and looked at what the Bible actually says about Mary, it could clear up a ton of stuff. But, but even her last words, people's last words are significant. So what were Mary's last words? Her last words were, do whatever he says. Mary is pointing us to Jesus. Now, verses 6 through 11. So here we have these water jars, these stone pots, six of them. And they're the kind that are used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these are, these are large containers. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. There's so many things going on in in this little uh, few sentences here. So many things that that we could look at and, and should look at. These ceremonial water pots, there, there is here something happening. There's, there's kind of a bigger picture of what's going on where there's a contrast between what, what Judaism had to offer and what Jesus brought. So at the end, Judaism doesn't, doesn't offer, it doesn't offer what the people had expected from it. 
the people thought, and especially in the day of Jesus, and even today, modern day Jews who are religious, they think that somehow it's within the, the system of Judaism that they're going to find fulfillment. But they don't. It was never intended to fulfill. It was, it was, a, it was a temporary measure. So with Jesus taking these, these water pots that were used for ceremonial cleansing specifically and performing his first miracle around that, he is, in a way, he's showing his fulfillment, that he is the one who fulfills Judaism and the promises of Judaism, that he supersedes what Judaism was able to offer. Now, John tells us, and this is, this is what we want to really focus on. He tells us that this is the first sign, or this is the first miracle that Jesus did. It's the first miracle, but John, John specifically uses the word sign, though, versus miracle. It was a miracle, but it was more than a miracle. It was a miracle that was pointing to something else. Now, the first is, is the point that we, we want to think about for a moment. There are many myths and legends and man, in, in the, the age of the internet, this stuff is, it's so prolific out there. People, every weird thing that's ever been said throughout history about Jesus, that's the stuff people find on the internet. You know, we get this question on pastor's perspective all the time. Um, what was the name of Adam's first wife? <laughs> it's like, well, let's read in the Bible. Adam only had one wife, as far as we could tell. Her name was Eve. Oh, but what about Lilith? <laughs> Lilith. So this, is, this comes from some, some 500-year-old or, or more uh, rabbinical myth. But man, somebody stuck it on the internet. Now everybody thinks Adam had a wife named Lilith. And likewise... These myths and legends that, that rose up around Jesus over long, long centuries, people are talking about these things today. Myths and legends about Jesus performing miracle as a child, miracles as a child, for example. One such myth says that Jesus, as a boy, traveled to Britannia, traveled to Britain with... Joseph of Arimathea, and there he performed various miracles. So it didn't take the age of the internet for that to, to get disseminated. William Blake, in his wonderful poem that is sometimes called Jerusalem, although he didn't name it that, um, he has these lines, and they're based on this idea. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? 
As much as I love this poem, the answer is no. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> but the, these, are, these are the kinds of myths. And John, um, if we just would read the Bible, we would know that Jesus as a boy did not go around healing his friends who were sick or patching up the wings of a little sparrow that had a broken wing or raise the neighbor kid from the dead or any of those kinds of things. No, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And it is an interesting one. He turned water into wine. Now, there are some Christians who don't like this miracle. <laughs> For probably obvious reasons. No, it wasn't really wine. He turned it into, well, it was grape juice in the end. Jesus turned the water into wine. There have been attempts, though, by some to sort of contradict the obvious and to say, well, it, you know, it wasn't wine like we think of it today and, and so on and so forth. But I want to quote to you from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was... Uh, the Bishop of Liverpool who lived in the late 1800s through the sort of the mid 20th century, highly respected, renowned, biblical expositor. And, and I'm, I'm quoting J.C. Ryle because some would say that because I, I hold a different position, some would say, oh, you know, Branch has been influenced by these modern thinkers and so forth. So uh, J.C. Ryle is not a modern thinker per se, and he is highly respected among all evangelical expositors. Listen to what he said. He said, it seems utterly impossible on any fair and honest interpretation to reconcile the passage before us with the leading principles of what is commonly called teetotalism, which we sometimes, a few people use that word today still, but uh, the idea is total abstinence from any alcoholic beverage. So, Ryle goes on, he says, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible by any ingenuity to prove that drinking wine is sinful. Temperance or moderation in all things is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Total abstinence from alcoholic beverages might be for some necessary, but to say as many do that to drink any alcoholic beverage at all is a sin is taking up ground that cannot be maintained in the face of the passage before us without twisting the plain meaning of Scripture. So it is not my point to preach on this subject today, but it's right here in the text. And I still hear over and over again, uh, you know, people insisting 
And it's hard to get around the reality that Jesus turned water into wine. And it was real wine. And notice, even the host, he, he implies that. What does he say? He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper after when the guests have had too much to drink. Why? Because they won't notice because they got a little buzz uh, at the wedding feast. But again, that's not my point. But I think sometimes we just need to address what's right there in the text. Now, also something that I think is interesting. So there, there's... Again, there's so many things here. Um, I just want to touch on a few, but then we'll get to our main point. But the method of the miracle is really interesting because there is no, um, I mean, nobody even knows a miracle is taking place. Jesus, he doesn't um, give any sort of a command. He doesn't say a prayer over it. He simply wills the change and it takes place. And you know, what I love about this is that it just, it just reminds us of how the Lord works. He works in, in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's through a verbal command. Sometimes it accompanies a prayer. Sometimes God just simply just does, this is, this is what we're going to do. So here they fill up the water pots and then he says, draw out the water. And when they draw it out, they find that it's not water. It's wine. So one other thing, and then we'll move on to our main point. The other thing is to note where this took place. This first miracle of Jesus takes place at a wedding feast. I do think that there's something that is being communicated through that. Because just like today, marriage has fallen on hard times and there's all kinds of confusion about the nature of marriage. It wasn't as confused back then as it is now, but it was still confusing. But in, in performing his very first miracle at a wedding feast, you have to recognize that Jesus is putting his stamp of approval upon what God established in the beginning. In the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. By performing his very first miracle at a wedding, Jesus is affirming that marriage is God's institution. It is ordained by God, and everything God said about it is the way it is supposed to be. It is, uh, it's honorable, as Hebrews 13 tells us, and in the context of marriage, the bed is undefiled, and it is marriage between a man and a woman. But that brings us to the main point. The main point is that this sign John says it's a sign. It's a miracle, yes. But John says it's a sign. And he uses the word sign because what John is doing, remember, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and through believing we would have life in his name. So these are things 
that are going to point us to that reality. So this is pointing us to this, this higher truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, so what are the things that are communicated through the sign? Number one, the true nature of Christ is, that's, that's being communicated here because he creates. The true nature of Christ is that he is the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. John has already stated such in the prologue. You remember he said concerning the word who was with God and the word was God. He said all things were made by him and without him nothing that was made was made. So now, having stated that, John is pointing to this sign as showing that that is to be true. Because you can't turn water into wine without a creative act, and only God can do that. So that is one of the things a sign is pointing to. The second is this, that Jesus has power to transform. Jesus has power to transform. He can take something as plain and common as water and make it extraordinary. And this is the message of the gospel. This is what John is talking about in his purpose statement. Life in his name means transformation. Taken from one thing and made into something else. You know, I like C.S. Lewis. I like to read his literature and I like to read about him. I've read a number of biographies on him. He was, um, we know him as the author of the, the children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia. And... Um, of course, the, uh, the, the, great, the great apologetics book, Mere Christianity, and, um, and, and other books, um, screw tape letters, and, and so forth. But Lewis was a, he was an academic. He was a, he was a prof professor at Oxford. And um, he became a, the chair of, of medieval literature at Cambridge. But, you know, he, he was a, a brilliant man and he was recognized as that. When he became a Christian, this is such a, it's a little thing, but it's a big thing. This is, my point is transformation. When he became a Christian, he stopped keeping a journal. He stopped. Now, his journal that he was keeping was basically his thoughts, his account of things 
that would be used in his mind at some point to promote him to a higher social position. When he becomes a Christian, he stops taking a journal or stops writing his journal. Doesn't mean that he didn't write stuff about his faith after that, but his, his own personal journal that was, was a piece of you know, who he was that, that would be used to promote him, he stopped and he said this. When asked why he stopped, he said, because I don't need any of that anymore. I've, I've got what I was looking for and I've entered into what I was created for. That's transformation. That's radical transformation. And we could talk about hundreds of transformed lives. But that's what Jesus does. Just like he took water, this common substance of water, and he made it into wine. He made it into something extraordinary, not just into wine, but into new wine, the best wine. And that's what he does in a person's life. He transforms us. And thirdly, and this is actually my main point, he came to bring us joy so that we might have life in his name. He's come to give us abundant life, life to the fullest. Jesus would, will say later in this gospel, that he said these things that our joy might be full. So you see, he came to bring people joy. Here's the thing. Wine is symbolic of joy. Listen to Psalm 104.15. Wine which makes the human heart cheerful. God gave wine which makes the human heart cheerful. So... What Jesus is, is demonstrating by doing his first miracle, this sign at this wedding, beside all the things that we've looked at, what he's demonstrating is that the life in his name is a, a life of joy. It is a life of joy. The big lie is that God wants to make our lives miserable. How many people have bought into that lie? Like, most people think that. Most people think that if I give my life to God, that is just the end of all that's enjoyable, all that's pleasant. I'm now consigned to a life of boredom and a life of misery. I mean, what an incredible lie that has been bought by so many. It is so opposite of the reality. But that's what people so often think. Nothing could be further from the truth. The first sign is a reminder to all of those suffering under the misery of their own sin or the sins of others, that God's heart for humanity 
is that we would live happy, peaceful, joyful lives. That's what God intended for the human race. And that's how it was in the very beginning. But then the devil came along and suggested to the first two people that no, there's really more out there that God's holding you back from. See, God knows that if you eat this fruit, you're going you're gonna to be like him and he doesn't want anything like that to happen. And that was the first lie. That was the lie that sent the human race in the direction that we've gone in. And it's the lie that people are still believing today. But it's not true. It's not true. And one day, we'll know. Everyone will know. Because Christ will come and give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's, that's what Jesus will bring with him when he comes to set up his kingdom. So in this present dark world, I mean, this is where we are. And, and I have to confess to you guys, I'm struggling this morning with all the information that I'm getting all week long about what's happening with people that we know and love. I am struggling with, Lord, how do I preach on joy this morning? Because this stuff is so depressing. But you know, in this present dark world, there are still places of joy. And I can tell you right now that I know even people who have fled from Ukraine and left everything behind, I know that there are people who have joy because they know the Lord is with them. And that's where their joy is at. And that is the reality. Wherever Jesus is, there is joy. Too many Christians are upset, angry, agitated, discouraged, and depressed. Too many. I believe God wants his people to be a joyous people. He wants us to be a joyous people. Not trite or trivial, but those who can take the problems of the world seriously, yet at the same time be joyful, hopeful, kind, and loving. See, this is a mark of the people of God throughout the ages. That the people of God have a different mindset than the people who don't know God. And the people of God have a different demeanor because we know the Lord, because we trust the Lord. Now, like I'm saying, that doesn't mean that we're trite or trivial. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize the seriousness of the moment. It doesn't mean that we are not considerate of the sufferings of others and we just seize the, the moment of crisis for some people to promote our perspective on something. 
It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that when I look around me and the world is, is caving in, that Jesus is where I need to be focused because in him there's joy. And, and Jesus, actually, when he says, these words I've spoken to you that your joy may be full, he, he's telling his disciples at that point about the, the tragic events that are going to unfold before them. He's telling them this all before he goes to the cross, hours before he goes to the cross. But he says, I'm telling you these things that your joy may be full. Keep your eyes on me. And so, invite Jesus into every aspect of your life and you will find the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what this first miracle is reminding us of. God intends us to be a joyful people.